Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's nice to be with you on this first Sunday of 2019. Not too long ago, uh, Nora and I were home alone. Elena was at work, and we had just finished eating dinner. And I had told Nora that if she had finished her dinner, she could have some dessert. Now, if you know anything about my daughter, you know that she loves two things most in the world, carbs and ice cream. And I promised Nora that if she had finished dinner, she could have some ice cream, she could have some dessert. So she did, she finished all her food, and I said, great, let me just clean up the dishes, and then you can have dessert. And I walked into the kitchen, which is adjacent to the dining room in our house, and Nora stayed in the dining room, she's at the table. And as I'm cleaning up, I can see her, and I can hear her, and she's singing. And she's singing to herself, you know those little two-year-old songs that they sing to themselves? She's just happy, she's, she's healthy, she's singing, and, and in the moment, I was just overwhelmed with love. I was so blessed that my daughter was happy and healthy and uh, realizing that this could have been a very different evening. We could have been in the emergency room. We could have been in the hospital. She could have been melting down, but she's not. She's healthy and she's happy. She's singing. She's enjoying life. And something that I do often with her and I'll do with the next kid is that I try to catch her attention and tell her that I love her. I know I'm going to fail as a parent, but I never want my kids to wonder if I loved them because they never heard me say it. And so I say it often. I try to catch their attention and I say, I love you. And that's exactly what I did. I looked over at Nora and she's singing and I said, Nora. And she looked at me as she's doing now. And I said, I love you. And you can guess what my daughter said next to me. The most heartwarming words a child could say to her parent. I said, I love you. And she said, ice cream. <laughs> and I laughed in the moment, but then I immediately started to get emotional. Not just because it was hilarious, although it was, but what had just happened. What had happened was that I was delighting in my child so much that I just wanted to let her know how much I value, cherish, and adore her. And so I said the three words that encapsulate that the best. I love you. And what she responded with was what I had told her I was going to give her. She was more focused on what I had promised her, not returning her love and affection for me in the moment. And I realize that this is because she fully doesn't understand what's happening. I can't expect her and her two-year-old self to know what I'm trying to do, which is to deepen our relationship. And after I put her to bed that night, I immediately wrote this down because what I realized is that this little interaction between Nora and I is a wonderful picture of our prayer life. We're like little children approaching a heavenly father, telling him he owes us things when the only thing he's trying to do is express how much he loves us in the moment. And I think that one of the reasons that we do this is similar to Nora. We don't understand what's happening. We don't understand prayer. We don't get it. And we miss what's happening in the moment. And there's a pretty prominent prayer within the Bible that we're going to look at this morning. This prayer has been adopted by Many denominations, it's been said over and over again, but I think if we understood it, it could change our prayer meetings, it could change our homes, it could change our lives. 
Before we dive into it, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, how good it is to call you Father. As we were just singing, you are a good Father. And we ask one thing this morning, Father, that you would give us a fresh glimpse of who you are this morning. Amen. Words mean everything. One of the things we do in our house is we'll say something to Nora, and then immediately after we'll say, what did I say? Which is vastly different from, what did you hear? If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Words are important to gain understanding and context, and the prayer that we're going to look at this morning has a lot of words, but without understanding them, we can easily end up in a completely different location from where they originally intended us to go. So open up to Matthew chapter 6. We're just going to look at four verses today. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read the, the four verses without commentary, and then we'll go back and dissect it a little bit. Starting at verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What are the first four words in verse 9? You can call it out. In this manner, pray then like this. King James says pray in this manner. Like is a wasted word in 2019. It's a word most commonly used as a filler word. It's a placeholder for empty thoughts, like, like, like. It's lost its importance and its value because you're not actually describing something, you're wasting space. But Jesus isn't saying, pray then like this. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking here, and he's giving what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, if you've never heard that, is just a categorization term to sum up Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And Jesus is speaking here, and he's teaching about prayer, and he's teaching about morality. And just before in verse 8, he actually shows you how not to pray. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles that use a lot of words. They think they're going to be heard because they use a lot of them. And then he transitions here with how to pray, and again, he says, pray then like this. What he does not say is pray this prayer exactly. He says, pray in this manner, pray similar to this, pray like this. So first of all, this is an amazing thing that Jesus says because it's life-giving. It's liberty, it's freedom. To pray prayers in a manner but not exactly, are wonderful. And if we've grown up always hearing it like that, sometimes we can become numb to the freedom that we actually have in prayer. Many other religions have specific prayers that you need to pray at specific times using specific words. There are key phrases that you need to use, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Second of all, we have to examine the word like because of its implication. If Jesus is implying that we ha only have to pray something in a manner, but not specific to what he's saying, well, then we've got to figure out what he's saying. 
So one more time, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What I believe Jesus is saying here is not to pray similar to this, where we just change a couple words and phrases. He's not saying, pray, our dad up in the sky, sacred is your title. He's not saying that. What I think he's saying is to model your prayer around the big idea being expressed. Model your prayer around the big idea being presented. And I think the more accurate title for this prayer is not the Lord's Prayer, but it's the Lord's model for prayer. It shouldn't be the Lord's Prayer, it should be the Lord's model for prayer. You say, well, what, is, what difference does it make? Why does it matter whether it's his prayer or it's his model for prayer? Well, let's ask the question, did Jesus have any debts? The word debt would imply something is owed, something outstanding, something you need to pay, something you cannot pay. Within the word Christianity, when we hear the word debt, it's usually associated with sin. So if we're implying that this is Jesus' prayer and he's asking the Father to forgive his sins, we've got to have a different conversation. So I like calling it the Lord's model for prayer. And the way I think we can best understand the Lord's model for prayer is like a room. We do different things in different rooms of our homes. We eat in the dining room and ask for ice cream. We relax in the family room. We prepare food in the kitchen. We sleep in the bedroom. And it would be ridiculous to sleep in the kitchen or prepare food in the bathroom. We all agree on this, right? Okay. So if we take this, if we look at this model for prayer as rooms in a house, then each section has a very specific role. Each section has a unique goal for the type of prayer we should be praying. Just like each room in a house has a designated purpose, each section of the Lord's model here has a singular goal. And sadly, what we end up doing is we make the food, relax, sleep, and use the bathroom all in the same room. We thank God for who he is for a minute, then we beg him for all we need, and then we close with how great he is. But I don't think that's what he meant when he said, pray like this. So let's look at this first room. Our Father in heaven. One of the most important things that I'm learning as a parent is the importance of my kids knowing my heart. We're not always going to agree probably going to argue sometimes. They may be confused. They may doubt my decision-making. But throughout those times, I want them to know my heart so well that they trust me through those difficult times. And if they know my heart so well, then those emotions might not be so crippling because they see the big picture of why. And I think sometimes we pray the same things over and over again because we don't know God's heart. We struggle with our relationship with him. And that's why this first room is called the relationship room. 
Right off the bat, Jesus is giving us this way to know God's heart. To set the expectation for prayer, he begins with our relationship. He says, our Father. This positions us. This aligns our hearts and our prayers. The other thing to note is that he says, our, not your. He's aligning himself with us, like Hebrews 4 says, that we don't have a high priest that can't empathize with what we go through. The types of prayers we should be beginning with are focused on our relationship with him. Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. That's Jeremiah 31. Father, you loved us so much that you sent your son. That's John 3.16. Like we just sang, Father, you're a good father. Father, you're a father to the fatherless, Psalm 68 says. Father, you know what I need before I ask. That's Matthew 6. Ephesians 1, he's adopted us as children. 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. This changes everything. I don't address my father or my father-in-law as Mr. Monteleone or Mr. Hagen. It's not even Paul or Joe. It's dad. That's closeness. That's privilege. That's relationship. When the, when the kids, my niece and nephews, were here a couple weeks ago, they called me Uncle Joey and all day long. It's Uncle Joey, Uncle Joey, Uncle Joey. And I was giving Nora a bath, and she said, Uncle Joey, can I have the soap, please? <laughs> and I said to her, you get to call me Dad. And I was talking with John about it, and he had a similar conversation with his kids, that there's only four people in the world that get to call me Dad. That's relationship. And the danger of missing this is that we miss out on God's heart for his sons and his daughters. We rush right into other rooms without focusing on our relationship with him, and that's why we don't see God as good, as sovereign, as father. How much it must hurt God on a deep level that as his children, we rush right past building a relationship with him because we're asking for ice cream. For example, finish this sentence. Jesus loves me, this I. But do you feel? What about Jesus loves me, this I feel? Now, I'm not talking about emotionalism, but being in a relationship has an emotional component. There's an emotional connection. And without that emotional connection, things can feel robotic and academic. Without that relationship factor, without emotion and feeling, without a warmth and a love and a tangible sense of who God is, we'll never move past Jesus loves me, this I know. That's not relationship. I have a lot of friends who don't believe what I believe. And when it comes up, you know, Joey, what do you believe about the world, about God, who he is? What I always say is think about the best memory that you have with your dad. A time when you felt most loved, most secure, most accepted. That's what my God is like. And I get to call him Father. That's relationship. And this is where it starts. And as we pray, we stay in this room as long as it takes. Don't rush into the next room. Don't try to get to the next section. Just focus on your relationship with your Father. You might even just stay in this room, but I guarantee you'll be surprised how inexhaustible it is. 
The next section of the prayer says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to revere as holy, to reverence, to worship. And so this room is called the worship room. Did you know that God's name is not just God? Yes, Father describes who he is, but throughout the Old Testament, there's actually over 77 different names for God. Each one is used at specific times for certain reasons and all gives a very unique aspect of who God is. For example, Elohim means mighty one. It's a plural term for God, usually speaking about his majesty or his transcendence. The root El means to be strong. That's used in Genesis 1, 26, Deuteronomy 5, Psalm 5, Psalm 86, and Psalm 100. It's used over 200 times in the Hebrew Bible. El Elyon means most high. That's used in Genesis 14, 18, and 19, Numbers 24, and Isaiah 14. El Roy, that means the God who sees. This one's used in Genesis 16. Hagar is cast out from Abraham's home, and she's wandering in the desert, and she has an encounter with God. And he says, you're not forgotten, I know who you are. And she calls him El Roy, because he was intimately acquainted with her situation. El Shaddai, we're a bit more familiar due to that song. That means all-sufficient one. Believe it or not, the word here in Hebrew uses the imagery of a nursing mother. It's feminine. Now, I'm not calling God a woman. But the picture God uses to describe provision is like a mother nursing her newborn. How inclusive How tender of God to use what probably is the most feminine act ever to describe how he provides for his people. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord provides. That's Genesis 22. Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac and God provides a ram. And Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Nisi means the Lord is my banner. I love this one. Exodus 17 tells the story of the Israelites in battle. And to secure the battle, they actually have to hold up Moses' arms. And as long as his arms were up, they were winning. If they fell, they lost. But they ultimately secured the battle. And then Moses builds an altar, and he calls it Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner in war. Others are Yahweh Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. That's found in Psalm 23. Jehovah Sidkenu, Yahweh our justice. I am the ultimate. That's found with Moses in the burning bush and Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Adonai means master. Yahweh Shema, the Lord who is present. I mean, that's only 10 of them. And we just spent 10 minutes on it. There's 77 of them. How vast and robust is even the name of our God? And yet we just call him God. We miss out on a beautiful opportunity to worship. And God's inviting us into this room to worship him just by using his names. In this room, we should be declaring that he's our provider by saying Jehovah Jireh. We should be declaring his lordship by saying Yahweh Adonai. When there's healing in our midst, Yahweh Rapha, the Lord is my healer. Yahweh Shalom, when there's peace. 
Eldia, God of knowledge, the omniscient one, when we need wisdom. You see, there's so much more to who this God is, and Jesus is inviting us into the mystery of who God is by using his name. Because spending time on his names, it changes the atmosphere in the room. It changes the intimacy that we have with the Father who we worship. The next room is Lordship. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A funny thing that Nora's doing now is that she's getting herself dressed. And she picks out her clothes, she selects them, she puts them on, and then she has to put on her shoes. She always puts them on backwards. And I tell her, your shoes are on the wrong feet. And she says, I like it. <laughs> now, it's cute. It's not a huge deal. But it's wrong. And eventually, it'll become uncomfortable. And just like backwards shoes, we get this prayer backwards all the time. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but the way we end up praying it is, your will be done, whatever that means, hey, I have needs, and so could you answer them, please? We make it transactional. It's no better than backwards shoes. It's not how it's designed. Alan Redpath has this quote. He says, Before we can pray, Lord, your kingdom come, we must first be willing to pray, my kingdom go. We've spent time building our relationship with him in the first room. We've been worshiping him through prayer by using his names. And now what we're doing is we're asking him to rule and to reign in our lives. We're asking him to take complete control of our ministries. Take complete control of my kids take complete control of my finances and my job and my insecurity and my fear and my passions and my doubts. Take complete control. Because this is your kingdom, not mine. You ever think about that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven? On earth as it is in heaven. We want what's happening up there to happen down here. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, what is it like in heaven? Well, in heaven, there's no competition for control. He's in control. In heaven, there's no struggle for position. He's the ultimate position. In heaven, there's nothing but submission to his reign. And as we're praying this prayer, we're asking him to be the Lord of our lives, to be our master, but this is difficult. Because in his, like uh, William Ernst Henley says in his poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. You see, we have a self-centered mentality, a self-generated, ego-driven mentality for our lives. But Jesus isn't asking to be a folder in our lives. He's asking for our lives. He's asking for complete submission to his mission on this earth. That's what it's about. It's about his mission. Okay, well, what is his mission? Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what the God who saves is asking of his people. Get on board with what I'm doing in the world. And what I'm doing is seeking and saving the lost. It's going to look different for all of you. It's going to change mediums over time. Your ministry is not all going to be the same, but this is the goal. Seek and save the lost. And by praying this prayer, we align our schedules, our calendars, and our lives around his lordship. 
The next room is called the sonship room, S-O-N-S-H-I-P. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I feel like we have a good relationship, Terrell Road, wouldn't you say? Oh, good. (laughs) Some of you have come to our house. We've been to your homes. Now, I want you to imagine something with me for a second. You invite us over, and you've been working hard on dinner. It's one of your best. And we're about an hour away from food, and we're talking in your living room. And mid-conversation, I just get up, and I walk into your kitchen, and I open the door to the refrigerator, and I help myself to some of your other food. You would think I was completely rude. And I'd probably think the same thing about you, too. Unless there was permission, unless, there, unless it was spoken that you could do this, it would be a bold, insensitive thing for you to do, for me to do, to just stand up and help myself to your, to your food. But if I'm at my in-law's house, it's expected that if I'm hungry, I have every right to go into the fridge and get what I'd like. It would actually be stranger if I did ask for permission. Because they'd say things like, you've been around this house for 10 years. You know where everything is. You married our daughter. You're our son. What's ours is yours. And this is the part of the prayer that is the most tender, sensitive, caring section because what it does is it identifies us as children. We've built our relationship with the Father. We've worshipped him by using his names. We've aligned with his mission. And then what does he tell us to do? Ask for bread. Ask me for what you need. Tell me. I want you to do this. It's not because he doesn't know. It's not because he's a narcissist. It's because we can. I call it refrigerator rights. I can ask God for things because of who I am. I'm his child. And this completely changes things with how I pray. I'm no longer asking God for something because I need it. I'm asking from a position of family. And I know, according to his word, that he loves to give good gifts to his children. That's Matthew 7, 11. I don't have to wonder if he's going to hear me. I don't have to hope that he answers. Why? Because I just spent time in the other three rooms. I've established who I am, and I've thanked him for being my father, my protector, my provider. I've worshipped his name and the many different facets of who this being is. I've aligned and joined with his mission. And at this point, I might have been praying for 30 minutes. And he still says, go ahead, ask me for what you need. I don't necessarily come to him with a laundry list anymore because I've already established who he is, why he's worthy of praise, how it's about his mission in this world, not mine, yet he says, do it anyway. Ask me anyway. He says, I know who you are, I know how you're formed, I know your weaknesses, and even though I'm sharing with you how to pray, this is still important. It's as though he's saying, even though prayer isn't about you asking me for things, I still want you to ask me for things. Which at this point, to me, seems pointless. Why would I ask him to provide healing when I've already thanked him for being a provider and a healer? Because he tells me to. 
And sadly, this is most often how we start prayer. We rush right into this sonship room. We start with, God, I need. God, provide that. God, give me those. God, we ask. And we miss out on the relationship. We miss out on the worship. We miss out on the lordship. We're like little kids asking for ice cream and missing the I love you. Could you imagine how vibrant and filled with life our prayer meetings would be if we prayed like this instead of rushing right into the refrigerator? Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That room is all about fellowship, how we can thank God for the fellowship that we have with him, how sin is no longer a barrier between us and God, which is highly interesting. We really don't have the time to go into it, but I will say this. This room order doesn't make sense to me. I grew up in a house that if you knew something was wrong, if you had done something and you needed to make it right, you went to that person right away and you asked for forgiveness before you could ask for anything. And I'll do the same thing with Nora. You want something from me, you want a snack, but you need to go apologize to mom, you go make that right first and then we'll talk about what you need. But that's not how God does it. He says, ask me for what you want, ask me for what you need, then apologize and forgive. It's a backward system. But I think that's what 1 Corinthians 1 is talking about. Verse 25 says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. So that room is all about fellowship, us with God, us with each other, and us with ourselves. And the last room is leadership. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, lead us not into temptation, lead us not away from you, deliver us where need be, but lead us. And personally, I wouldn't ask anybody to lead me if I wasn't very close to them. And if we're going to ask him to lead us, then we also need to be close. It's interesting is how Jesus chooses to close the prayer model. He ends with, lead us. He doesn't say, protect us. He doesn't end on, heal us. He doesn't stop with, provide for us. He doesn't close with any of the things we usually close our prayer meetings with. Again, it's a submission to his leadership. It's a submission to his position in our lives but it's also open-ended. See, asking to lead doesn't have a destination and it doesn't have an end point. It's an ongoing request to the Father to say, continue to be the Lord of my life and show me where you would have me go. And as we close, if you think about it, if you spent five minutes in each of those rooms, that would be a half an hour. And that's just five minutes. Now, I'm not saying little prayers throughout the day are bad or even unnecessary, but there's a giant difference between a nap and going to bed. A nap is to get you from one stretch to the next. Going to bed is to recharge you. The little prayers throughout the day are good to get you from task to task, but it's the time spent in his presence, the extended periods of prayer that charge you up. And sadly, we potentially could live most of our Christian lives uncharged. 
because we don't understand what prayer is. That it's about building our relationship with God. One room at a time. As far as application, where do we go from here? I think the first thing, as you go through your prayer life this week, just recognize what room you're in. Do you start off in the relationship room or do you rush right into the sonship room? Is worship a part of your conversation with God? Do you ask for leadership? I think a great first step will just be recognizing what room we're in. If you're interested, there's a handout in the back with the rooms labeled and uh, it's got all the names of God. Maybe not all of them, but. But as we continue in our walk with faith, as we continue in our spiritual journey, we time and time again see a God whose sole intention is about creating relationship with his children. Even when they're just asking for ice cream. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for being a father to your children. And we confess that we have a flawed view of what a father should be with wounds and uh, different understandings, but you're the constant that remains in our lives, a good father. Your name is Yahweh Shema. You are present and you have been. You've been the guest of honor in this place ever since we began this morning. And Father, we align with your kingdom this morning that this world would be affected by your love and by your design for humanity to save and seek the lost. May that be our mission individually, but also corporately here at Terrell Road, to seek and save the lost. Father, you have continuously worked towards owning our hearts. And Jesus, even as you instruct us to pray, we don't see condemnation, but adoration. We don't see judgment, but we see compassion. We see a warrior who is in constant battle for our hearts. And just by these examples of rooms, may our relationship with you increase through prayer like never before this year as we seek to be led by you. Lead us now from this place in your name. Amen.